From the home studios of the Teaching Systems Lab at MIT, this is Teach Lab, a podcast about the art and craft of teaching. I'm Justin Reich. Today we have Kevin Dua. He's a 2017 Massachusetts History Teacher of the Year, a history teacher at the Cambridge Ringin Latin School in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where he's an advisor to the Black Student Union, which recently received the prestigious MTA Human and Civil Rights Award. Kevin is also an inaugural member as the Uplift Legacy Cohort, an organization that works to celebrate, support, and empower male educators of color. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us today. Justin, thank you so much for having me. Um, I've said this multiple times. I'm still getting used to Zoom and virtual or Zoom and just virtual um, interactions. Um, so again, I I am just appreciative that you are going to be patient with me if there are any technical difficulties. No, not at all, not at all. Um, well, let me just start, Kevin. With how are you? You know, not just as a teacher, but as a human being. I mean, it's been tumultuous months with the pandemic, with the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, protests across the country. Um, you know, how does this moment find you? Um, it's been, it's been a lot. I usually, when I've, I've heard that question from people close to me, um, I, I say something along the lines of I'm tired. I'm inspired. Um, I'm angry. Um, I feel exhausted. Um, I feel winded. I feel motivated. Yes, it, it's, it's just been a lot to process. And there's like this fire inside me that um, is ignited and also extinguished at the same time because, yeah, just I'm feeling it all like nonstop. Um, like I felt it before, but I can't, I don't have the privilege of turning off my mind about what's going on. Right. Right. Yeah. Which I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that wealth and whiteness does insulate some people from, you know, the freedom to be able to be like, Oh, I'll just go in my backyard now and um, step away from that for a little while. And not everybody, you know, depending upon where you live or, or your life experiences has that, How, the, that feeling of being, you know, inspired aflame and, and extinguished, what are, how does that intersect with your sort of professional identity as a teacher, as an ally to youth activists? Um, professionally, how has the moment struck you? It's it's it has struck me in a sense of it has changed everything, and everything has remained the same. And what I mean by that is, I think over the last several years. Um, the research that I have done as an educator, so integrating critical thinking and topics centered on racial identity and agency and activism and social justice and um, having students run with that and following their lead. So the emphasis or the need for that is still there. Um, and it feels as if it's more, it's more valued than ever before not just in schools, but just across the board. Um, so in that sense, it that hasn't changed. On the flip side, it's it's this unapologetic 
tongue of knowing that as an educator, as a history educator, as a black educator that teaches history, um, this sense of feeling compelled to advocate more, feeling compelled to listen to individuals who are a part of you know, identified marginalized groups. So whether it's black folks, indigenous people, um, people of color, um, and being being more explicit. And by more explicit, it's articulating more in terms of what is needed um, and not what is what should be tolerated. And whether that's, again, a curriculum change, um, whether it's a revamping of policy, um, it, it's, it's like, if there was ever a time where the responsibility is on a black educator's shoulder, um, it, it feels like it's now. Um, and it, it's in many ways, it's hard to convey, yet just the conversations that I've had with many colleagues, many black um, colleagues in this field, we are all feeling it whether we homeschool, um, part of a charter or private or public, we all feel this sense of um, whether it's remotely or in person, it, it, it's like there's, there's this permission now to be as authentic because everyone understands that being anything less than that is going to be harmful, not just as an educational institution, but also for our young people. How do you think concretely, or what have you heard from your colleagues in your own practice? Like, how do you, what are some ways that you see that authenticity emerging in new ways or in reinforced ways? Like, you know, if I was visiting the classrooms of the, or, or the homeschools or whatever it is of the colleagues that you've been talking to, um, what do you think I should be looking for? I think um, right off the bat is just the type of language that people are using. Um, I think. Oftentimes, educators talk about like wanting to integrate current events. And so right now, you know, the current event or the current event, it's if it's not COVID-19, um, it's you know, systemic racism, it's white supremacy. So if those words, if those key terms aren't being said aloud, regardless if this is a social studies classroom or math classroom, um, that should be a red flag. Um, if the classroom setting that you see isn't racially diverse, that should be a red flag. If the educator is not someone a part of, um, you know, the Black, Indigenous, people of color, like that entire community, if you will, then seeing how they engage with individuals that don't look like them. Um, whether they are overly nice or overly strict. So, so that's what I believe you sh should be looking right off the bat. It's, it's this idea of recognizing a microaggression, recognizing how is someone taking a current event and integrating it to a foreign language class. And again, after a few minutes, if you don't get that sense, if you don't get the sense that the youth in the room are being centered, that they're not being confined to, let's say, you know, raising your hand or sitting in a desk or make sure that the background in your virtual window looks a certain way. 
Um, if this is the sense of structure that has so much layers tied to this hierarchy of white supremacy and whiteness, if, if, if you see that, if you see what was normal before closure, those should be red flags. Because I think, I think over the last, I think since March, um, many people are trying to recognize what worked, what didn't work in terms of inequities. I think since June with the, the rightful uprising of people's reactions um, towards you know, the death, the murders of George Floyd and then prior to that, Breonna Taylor, is this sense of we have, so many of us have tolerated or have been bystanders to structures that were through a white lens. And in the classroom, that is supposed to reflect as much equity and equality as possible. A classroom that's supposed to reflect this sense of empowering young people. And, we, and we've been talking about this together, Kevin, for a year. So, so we had a conversation a year ago, and I would mm -hmm. say some of the most distinctive parts of that conversation were you describing to us a pedagogical approach that says, um, you know, in your classroom, you focus on unlearning that people have a whole set of expectations. The, the teacher's supposed to stand in the front of the room. The students are supposed to stand on the other side of the room. The teacher's supposed to say what they do. The students are supposed to raise their hand when they're supposed to talk. And you know, a year ago, before all these things were happening, um, you were saying that a big part of your pedagogy is disturbing those systems. Wait, why am I standing up here? And why, do you, why are you raising your hand? Why am I the teacher not raising my hand? Why do I get to pick who gets to talk? Um, and through those kinds of questions of making the familiar unfamiliar, you know, having your students start to recognize like, hey, there are hierarchies of power and maybe hierarchies of oppression in our classroom. How, how did they get here? Um, why do we reenact them every day? Um, let's listen to what you had to say about that last September. Over the last few years, I've, I've had this approach of validating that agency. Um, I think sometimes many individuals who are adults can't help or choose um, to be ageist. For instance, maybe day two, I open up the opportunity for the student to ask me any question that they can think of, as long as they can justify or rationalize why the response is pertinent mm -hmm. or valuable to their education. So for instance, a question that I would ask um, just starting out would be, um, could a student explain why you are taught to raise your hand to use the bathroom? Mm -hmm. And for many of them, you know, they may say, you know, uh, my family told me this or a teacher growing up. Um, but then analyzing as to they don't raise their hands um, in the confines of their home. Mm -hmm. um, they don't raise their hand if they are out to eat. Yeah. So why in a school building that they have to raise their hand for bodily function? Mm -hmm. um, and so asking like many of those questions um, where you can talk about intersectionality, so whether it's tied to race or gen gender, sexual orientation, and then trying to find like a common foundation or how have all of these systems impact um, our upbringing, especially living within this nation of ours? 
it opens up this sense of, okay, what does this mean? What does this say about us? Um, are there any areas that need any type of improvement? Um, so it, it, it does spark a sense of curiosity. Um, and many students have expressed that, whether it's in psychology or history, um, they haven't been presented um, with such um, information, just just a sense that, okay, we are going to unpeel um, we're gonna make we're gonna make the familiar unfamiliar. 100%. We're gonna make a thing yes. that you would do every day that yes. you've done every day in schools, and we're gonna say no, no, no. Like there's a sort of in the history class, there's an yes. intellectual foundation behind these decisions. Yes. How do you see that work changing in the year ahead, mm. where, where essentially, you know, the process of making the familiar unfamiliar that was happening in your classrooms and happening in a couple other places is now happening everywhere. You know, more so than I feel like more so than ever before in my lifetime, um, there's this huge shift mm. in popular opinion about the, you know, the the insidious ways that white supremacy compromises our society, compromises our lives, you know, makes uh, black and brown people suffer, but makes white people suffer alongside them well in certain kinds of ways. Mm. Um, how do you see that process of unlearning being the same or different in the year ahead it's it's a it's a sigh of relief and it's nerve-wracking and it's the same and 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 what i mean by that it's 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 incredible that folks feel that now is the time um it's nerve-wracking because these are individuals especially white colleagues who have never done this before. So even the idea of, you know, we are learning an anti-racism curriculum in many ways can be seen as a slap in the face because you can't like, it, it's not a learning aspect or it's a learning document or a binder, you know, for individuals who look a certain way, this is their life. It, it, it is their livelihood. Say more, Kevin. What's the slap in the face? It's that teachers have the freedom not to learn this, and they've chosen not to learn it their whole life, and now they're choosing to do so. Yes, yes, I, I, yes, that, and it's, it's, it's a sense that there are going to be literal conversations, hopefully, in academic settings, where when we're talking about educating young people about anti-racism, like the unlearning part. It's this mm -hmm. idea of we have to teach how to help individuals, especially white adults, how to unlearn this ideology that has been embedded in them on how not to interact with a human being that doesn't look like them. So, so, so again, like, like the, the idea of just understanding whiteness it's needed, it's overdue, and it's, it's nerve-wracking because, again, it's, it's hoping that either you know, districts, communities, um, individuals are collectively and independently trying to figure out how to do that, so having that hope. And also, as a Black educator, it's, yeah, there, there's, there's the burden of having to realize that, yeah, you may have to teach 
um, that regardless if you want to or not, and that in itself is exhausting. Yes. Yeah, the burden of oppressed groups to explain to their oppressors how to stop oppressing them, you know, is itself like another form of frustrating, tiring oppression. Justin, that is the line of that. That is, <laughs> yes, well said, yes. What, so one harm, here's a, here's a point that I think we have in common that we're excited, you and I are excited for this moment. We're hopeful for this moment. Like I'm thinking that, that you know, five years from now, they're just going to be many more educators in the classroom that are asking themselves questions, you know, well, what am I putting in my curriculum and how will my students see themselves in my classroom? And how, how do I see my biases, which I know I have because I'm a human being in a broken world being expressed. Um, so even, even if you have some optimism around that, what are the short term harms that you're most afraid of? Like who is going to get hurt as white educators do this unlearning and learning and is there any way that we can minimize some of that hurt or some of those uh some of some of that painful growth it it would be those who would get harmed would be you know myself um our our you know black and brown students um you know the intersectionality of you know someone's racial identity ethnicity um, along with, let's say, their gender or their sex, you know, tying in class, like the, the in, in many ways, as much as I would want to agree with what you said, it, it, it's, it can't, there's no way to, to even put in parameter that is, it's going to be short term. Like I mm. can, rem I can remember what happened to me in second grade. And, and I know it could be called a microaggression now, but I, I can remember what my second yeah. grade teacher. So short term it's this idea of a colleague or student looking or interacting with their teacher um, someone um, in the educational space and that gut reaction of how how are you screwing up in a you know with with the open book test with everything that's going on <laughs> how when you have, you can have a, a cheat sheet virtually. You can block and, and there's no way I can see and you're still doing this in October, 2020. So, so, so short term, that's, that's the reaction. And, and I think how white educators can unlearn that it's, it's, it has to be, there has to be a demand an aggressive, explicit demand from white educators, from white district leaders. And as much as I hate to say that it's true, as educators of color, as black educators, demanding that professional development, any resources that are available, that the consistent and nonstop just training and resources of like unlearning about whiteness, about like microaggressions, about listening to the stories of your black colleagues, um, um, listening to, to the harm. Like it, it has to be just all on the table dive into that's mandatory. Um, Cause I think you said it best, like th this can't be this, you know, I can't do this on a Monday, but can, because doing that, it, because doing the intentionality, the explicitness, 
optic wise, it's a sigh of relief being like, okay, at least you are, you, you know what it looks like. And that's, and, and again, like, I, I think just as, as educators, often we go through our own grad school programs and we hear that we have a voice, but we don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're seeing on the news that educators across the country are, are trying their best to integrate their voices about having a say about what September is going to look like. Yep. Um, and as much as that is, as much as that is important, what is equally as important is cool. Whatever this looks like in person, virtual or hybrid, once that is confirmed, the next thing is cool. So how do I like the content I'm about to teach? It's, it's, it's right there. It's that anti-racism content that's going to be tied into how we teach any curriculum come the beginning of the school year. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the amazing thing about this moment. You know, if you had said to me five months ago, hey, there's going to be nationwide protests about police violence, about anti-Black racism, and we need to spur massive curricular changes in our schools to address that. I would have said, wow, that's going to be really hard. I mean, I think I think we can do it. I think the time is now to do it, but that's going to be hard. If you had told me five months ago, there's going to be a massive global pandemic and you're going to have to shut down all the schools and transition them to remote learning, I would have gone, wow, that's really hard. If you do that, you probably won't be able to do anything else. Just figure out how to do that. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in this moment of actually trying to do both of those things mm-hmm. at the same time you know, and to some, you know, Kevin, you describe them as sequential, but I'm not, I'm not even sure they're things that you can separate as parallel because we know that race has implications for the decision about whether to go remote or in person or online. Um, that many of our, you know, uh, there men in many neighborhoods, it is black and brown families who have less access to technology that makes remote learning work. Um, they also have greater comorbidities and more at risk of catching the coronavirus and dying. Um, and so race is implicated um, in these decisions. You know, I was noticing that uh, Prince George's County was one of the first counties mm-hmm. to say we're starting all online. Um, and, you know, was reading some education pundits say like, oh, well, was it a small minority of people who, you know, forced them to go all online? Um, you know, and, and uh, 46% of families wanted to go full remote um, and 42% of families wanted to go partially remote and partially in person. And part of that, you know, there's 700 people who died in Prince George's County and the county is disproportionately black and brown and the people who got sick and died were disproportionately black and brown. Um, and so, you know, I mean, race is there from the very beginning in thinking through it, you know, it, it, in thinking through these kinds of decisions and um, who's harmed and, and who's marginalized um, in making these choices. Tell me about colleagues in your community at Cambridge Ringe and Latin who are making contributions in really effective ways. Are there any folks that have good strategies for helping people think through these tough issues? Um, Mr. Whitfield is um, a teacher at the high school. Miss Yu, um, she is also a teacher at the high school. And Miss Ibriano, um, she's also a, a teacher at the high school. And those three individuals have played in, in, in just having not only dialogue with me, but also dialogue with 
their peers within their departments um, with their students. And it's not, it's not just anything specific in terms of, you know, we need to do X, Y, and, and Z, um, as it has been so much of like this critical thinking of questioning, of being able to look at headlines, being able to look at policy, being able to look at data. And the framing of questions is in terms of inquiry is so key in any decision that's being made. And it may sound elementary for so many people of how to ask a good question. Um, and not just like a yes or no, but an open-ended question because those questions opens the door to understand who's in these rooms making decisions. Opens up the door in terms of what is going, what are the, what are the implicit and explicit bias that are the driving force in individuals, whether it's parents, teachers, students, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, custodians. Um, because as you said, this is like, you can tie everything back to race. Like how, whatever looks like it's in temple, it, it race will be there in the front and the back and the side. So yeah, like it, it's, it's those colleagues that I've, that I've learned so much from just, just the way of framing questions to get answers, whether they exist or don't exist has for me helped me understand more of how can I do that um, and how I can help students do that as well. Kevin, this is just an extremely consistent answer from you in our in our dialogues <laughs> over the last year. That like, what is the most important thing to do in a in a dual crisis? It's the same thing that was important to do before, which is to ask questions about what are the social dynamics at play here, and what are the things that's going on, and who's included and who's not, and why are we here? It's like a very history <laughs> teacher answer to this question, and I'm here for it. I want to say that. Um, because I think, you know, I think a thing that you're bringing up is a tension that I've heard from lots of different stakeholders trying to open responsibly, which is that everyone is desperate for answers. Like we all want to know what the plan is for September, how we're going to be open, how we're going to save, how we're going to learn, how we're going to build back better, build anti-racism into that building back. Um, but, but there's in many ways, there's, there are no shortcuts to the answers to those questions. Um, it, the questions have to invoke more questions and that part of the whole process has to be communicating and building trust. You know, another thing that I want to pull out from your answer, which seems really important to me, um, and that I hear from a lot of people, including my undergraduate students at MIT, which is that part of the activism of this moment is being in the school board meetings, trying to help schools make good decisions, being on the streets, having your voice heard. But it's just having conversations with other people to process this moment together. I mean, I don't know how many undergraduate students have told me that they feel like a big part of the work that they're doing right now is talking to their parents, talking to their family members, getting getting people to, to, to do some unlearning that's sort of well-established for them. So with that thought, we should talk about the CRLS Black Student Union, um, which just received the Massachusetts Teachers Association Human and Civil Rights Award. Um, which has been given away since 1983. Um, all right, I'm going to play a segment from our last interview about your work as an advisor to the Black Student Union at Cambridge Ringe in Latin. Um, Garrett, go ahead and roll that clip. My philosophy has been I'm their loudest and unwavering 
um, cheerleader mm-hmm. for any student, any black student that's a part of this organization. There's nothing wrong with being black. There's nothing wrong with their black identity. And that the stigmatization, um, whether it's racism, preju- um, prejudice, discrimination, tied to their identity is going to is going to reappear just from them assembling within a space um, known as the Black Student Union. Mm-hmm. And so in many ways, whether it's a blessing um, or the default unfortunate burden um, to... And both of those things will happen at the yes. same time. They're yes. going to create this affinity yep. space where they can support each other. You know, yeah, you're convening. It's, I mean, it's powerful for me to recognize. You're convening people in a way that's both going to support them and create new kinds of vulnerabilities. Yes, and and it's it's... It's also holding that mirror to um, a black student and for them to like look at yourself and in many ways flipping that mirror to a society, whether it's educators who are perpetuating um, such harm um, or other community leaders and and have them see the cracks in the mirror that they're doing. Um, And then really being able to confront how why they created that crack, how did they do so, how to repair that. And that's the unlearning process, the biases, whether it's unintentional unintentional or not, it is hard. Um, not impossible, but it is hard for many individuals, especially in Cambridge, trying to grapple with uh, the potential harm that um, they can or have caused. This student club started in 2017 when I first came to Cambridge. And that graduating revival class left um, feeling feeling as if their work was unfinished, trying to integrate um, whether it's um, distinguishing incident reporting centered on harassment or sexual violence and so forth. Um, analyzing um, data um, of racial bias and prejudice um, with educators across the district, um, integrating um, a K-12 anti-racism curriculum. As teenagers, being able to have a seat at the table and have their voice take part in a decision that can systemically help, not just them, but across the district or being able to create their own table, create their own chairs and being able to use that platform to integrate those that same energy. What what is the work of the what are the students doing right now? What does the work of the Black Student Union look like right now from what you hear from them? What do they feel like they're going to be taking on this coming year? Um, what what are what are priorities for them in Cambridge, Massachusetts? Um, like truthfully, it's recuperating. Mm. I, 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 you know, March changed their world, um, instantly, whether they are current students or students who it was their last year before graduating. And so, yeah, the transitioning, whether it was smooth or not remotely took a toll. Um, and then, yeah, the once again viral 
of you know the murder of someone that looks like them that they have no idea who they are just being played mm. and the sense the responsibility of trying to do homework not be traumatized by a video um, hearing the noise that's coming from you know TV um, or social media um, hearing people um, chanting um, hearing sirens you know hearing a rhetoric that it, that is bigotry whether you are you know a black person and you're seeing that the data is saying that you know you're being impacted the most yeah if you're if you have a friend who's who's asian you, you're hearing the bigotry um tied to covid so like for the young people you know these individuals who earn this award it's it's from what i've heard from many alumni it's it's they are appreciative of you know the work they put in as young people the balance of it all yet in many ways it's also ex it's it's exhausting it, it's mm. this idea of like we won an award because we were able to harness and process and navigate through our trauma like that's that that is the, the, yeah the, yeah wow. so 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 and again like hearing that from them like yeah you you me as a 16 17 year old i was thinking about you know power rangers and x x x men and they are doing that and also winning awards and you know marching and so forth um so yeah I, it's it's from from what i've what i've able to hear from them it's they're they're motivated and they they too are just trying to process everything that's going on and and i I would be remiss not to say that this moment that so many people, that everyone is seeing and feeling. For for so many black and brown folks, especially you know, young black and black and brown folks, yeah, the world may have been flipped upside down on a Monday. Um, for so many young black and brown folks, it was still Monday. It it, it was like, yeah, I don't really have great technology, or I do. And I'm able to log into a class, but I'm about to receive a microaggression from the same educator, just digital, virtually. Right. And, and I think that that's so important, like the conversation I'm having with colleagues about, you know, not just like the students who win this award, but it's inequities have always been there. Like that's that that in itself is so important that the pandemic didn't bring inequities. Um, it just shed revealed light, them revealed them and revealed them and, and then I, exacerbated them and then exacerbated them and i think and i think for my for my students it's this sense of you know how can they continue being involved um and being able to take a breath at the same time well i th you know I, that's such an important way of defining these kinds of affinity groups you know i mean we talked to beverly daniel tatum mm -hmm. um who's a developmental psychologist the former president of spelman college you know and a big part of her research why are the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria is look it is developmentally normal as you're forging your identity to have race be part of your identity and so you spend some of your time in uh in in racial groups mm -hmm. um in order you know to to you know, I think the Black Student Union at Cambridge has 
has been exemplary in the kind of activist work they've done. And I think a lot of other black student union, Asian student union, Latin student unions do that work too. But also it's just a healing place. It's a place that we can come together with people who have shared experiences with ourselves and say, all right, so what is it like to be here? Yes. Um, and what are you doing to get it through? I mean, I think that's a good reminder for adult allies to be able to ask themselves the questions, you know, where are students going to find those spaces? Where are they going to find those spaces virtually? Um, and, and how can we support that good, important work? As you, I, I think there are going to be lots of educators in the year ahead who take on more responsibility mm. as advisors and guides for student activists. Kevin's got his fingers crossed here um, that we're hoping that, that more adults take on that responsibility in all kinds of activism. I and mean, we just see, we're seeing a, a surge of, you know, climate change, youth activism, all different kinds of youth activism. You've been doing this work for a bunch of years now. Um, you know, if, if when teachers come to you and say, Kevin, I'm going to take on new roles with this student group, I'm, I'm helping to start a black student union or advising them or whatever else it is. Like what makes a good adult ally? How do, mm. how do adults do, what, what are really like your top three suggestions for doing that work well? The, the first one will be that the students are in charge. They, they make the rules, they, they tell you, they tell you if the lights are on or off. Uh, and you have to encourage and challenge them and go more out of your way to relinquish um, you know, the ageism that's embedded in us um, and follow their lead as consistently as possible. Um, so, so that's the first one. And, and that's, not, that's not an easy, it, it's not easy. It, but, not for teachers at all. I mean, yeah. our, our intuition as teachers is, young person, you are missing something and I am here to help fill you up with it. And there, I think there's, you know, there's still places for that in yeah. school and there's probably still places for that in advising, you know, but just this idea of trying to ratchet that, you know, core professional instinct way, 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 way down is an important starting yes. point. Yes. Um, the, the, uh, I would say the second one would be that, and even in, even the word ally, it's, it's for me, I see myself as an advisor, a advocate and a co-conspirator mm -hmm. um, and I say all that because for me as an ally if, if I see myself or self-proclaim myself as an ally then yeah it's true I can get my stipend money for this club and meet once a year for a yearbook picture and then that's it and students recognize that so it's important that as an advisor you're right there is there is um, aspects of what we can provide from our own experiences um, to advise them. Um, there, there are privileges that we have as adults to be able to get into room, to integrate their voices. Um, and Cole's, Cole's, as a co-conspirator, is that, hey, you, you can't just have these students who are running this club, you can't just roll them into the deep end um, and say, nope, sorry, I'm done. You have to be with them from September to June. Um, and as exhausting as that is, what's even more exhausting is knowing that your students are doing it by themselves um, and you chose to walk away. So yeah, it's, it, is, it is centering students. 
What do, what do, you, what do you mean by you chose to walk away as that being more exhausting? So, so the, the idea of that, if you are a teacher that comes into the profession and one of your core values is that you care about kids mm-hmm. and you, for whatever reason you want to bring up, you say that because of X, Y, and Z, hey, students, I know you want to do this civil disobedience. I'm sorry. I can't. I, I got to go home. Yeah. So you, when you're home, it's, it's, it's exhausting to think of like, oh, my God, what's happening to the students? I hope they're okay. But you chose that as opposed to being exhausted exhausted with them right there. And yep. that's, that's so important that students, when, when we talk about representation matters, students want to see to see that you're not just telling them to lead the way. Um, and again, I know for so many teachers, we are told and we've seen this growing up that things are political, like students, like let students formulate their opinions. Truth be told, we're in a moment where students, students can get opinions anywhere. They want to know factually as an educator, as this adult, as this advocate, as this advisor, like what are your values? Like what are your factual values? Because if I don't know, then this curiosity of like feeling, can I trust this person is going to play a huge role in clubs lasting as long or short as they do. So yeah, it's, it's, and I think there's that third part. It's, you have to be honest, like, like your values have to align with what this club is about. So I couldn't, there's no way that I could have been comfortably and authentically the advisor of a black student union if I promoted any sense of anti-blackness uh, for someone who is, who has a 1.0 GPA or someone who has their bag or who have their pants sagging or someone who have braids or someone who's light skin or someone who um, is, of, is of the LGBTQ community. Or, and so for me, like I, my room isn't confined to one version of a black person. So the moment I'm able to, the moment my bias comes out, those students should always have the right to check me. And if they feel that they can't and they see that my bias is excluding black folks, then they have every right to say like, no, you are not an advisor of an all black student union club. So facts on learning that ageism um, and and being a cult conspirator. It's good, it's good. So there are moments in advising the black student union that you decide to intervene. You know, there are more of them in which you decide to let students lead. Mm-hmm. What are some of the sort of kind of triggers for you or, mm-hmm. or the cues for you that are like, okay, um, I, I need to intervene here. What makes you decide like, all right, now is the right time to do that? Um, it could be a moment where let's say everyone is talking over themselves or each other, I should say. And even if they are great ideas um, all happening um, from different angles, if it's not being heard um, in order to be validated in or challenge, then then it just goes into, it, it just evaporates. And, and for me, it's using my loud 
teacher voice or just presence and saying, hey, let's structure this. Um, and I can be the person to write this down um, while you all figure out a way to exchange your ideas. Um, and like that's 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 a way of me intervening when I'm able to step back and see what's going on. And yes, sometimes that works. And other times, similar to some of the the advice that I mentioned, a student can look at me and say, Mr. Dua, we hear each other just because you don't. <laughs> that doesn't mean like we like someone is writing this down. We have good memory. Like we're fine. And so if or when that happens, for me, it's cool. I know that intervening doesn't always necessarily mean that they are going to agree with me. And it sounds like an important norm that you've set up with your students is they have to be able to challenge you. Like, like it can't be that you unilaterally decide when to intervene, that there's a sort of negotiation here. Yes. That you come into the student and say, I'm trying to give you as much leadership in this as we possibly can, but there are some times that I am an adult is going to be able to help you. And I'm just going to make my best guess as to what those times are. And if you think I got it wrong, you got to be able to tell me because I need to be able to keep adjusting based on what you need. Yes. I mean, I think that... You know, because even then, what you're trying to offer, you know, as an authority figure, I mean, you can use yeah. your booming teacher voice in a way that most people can, is sort of still subject to negotiation with your students. It's us still deciding together what role you want me to play, um, you know, and if and if part of my, my job is to use my slightly more developed executive function to remind you when you're going bonkers, then I'll do that a little bit. Um but you know, mostly trying to stay away from stay mm -hmm. that. I think that's good guidance for new folks taking on that role. Thank you, thank you. So there's, you know, schools are going to reopen, mm -hmm. um, and we're hopeful that that you know that the protests are part of the curriculum, mm -hmm. and the pandemic is part of the curriculum. If if you know, if you have one piece of parting advice for teachers as they get ready to start this year, um, what are you hoping that folks keep front and center? Um, in what I'm sure will be one of the most oh. remarkable, challenging years in uh, in K-12 education. Somehow, <laughs> um, somehow in your curriculum, somehow in your day, there has to be time and space for a moment of silence. And I say that because whether, you know, it's the educator who have experienced loss uh, whether of time of individuals or your students, your colleagues, as a history teacher, like the way we value lives, it, it's so it, it, it's so complex, and it is just felt that with everything that's going on, there hasn't been like like a pathway like to integrate like reflection, like a moment of individuals who can't be there whether even if you have 20 boxes on our, your screen and you see four of them are blacked out it, it's the sense of it's it's it, it, it's this if you can empathize empathize but there's a sympathy that we can all do that doesn't take just this moving of mountains and, and and i think that's 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 my advice it's we all have to do a moment of silence well, that's so consistent with what you've said before, Kevin, which is that these are their times for questioning, their times for reflection, their times for healing. Um, 
and that what follows the moment of silence is going to be good questioning. It's going to be good unlearning. It's going to be good activism. Um, but at the heart of that has to be a kind of humanity. Yeah. Um, you can probably hear some of my humanity in the background <laughs> of uh, young people who are going to be freed up now who I should go hang out with. But Kevin, it's so great to be able to revisit this conversation with you. I hope we can keep doing this uh, over the course of the year because these are challenging times for a lot of educators. And I think uh, you know the work that you've done with the, with the students of the Black Student Union in Cambridge has been really inspirational in thinking about you know how 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 teachers serve their students in developing the skills the competencies the ambition the confidence to be able to to change their communities to to make them more of what we want to see in the future amen amen for all of that thank you so much justin for all of this that was kevin dua history teacher of the cambridge ringe and latin school We've had a conversation about this incredible moment, about building anti-racism into the curriculum as we come back to schools and in supporting students as they do their work as activists in the months ahead. I'm Justin Reich. Thanks for listening to Teach Lab. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Be sure to subscribe to Teach Lab to get future episodes on how educators from all walks of life are tackling distance learning during COVID-19. I'm also proud to announce that I have a new book coming out, Why Technology Alone Can't Transform Education, and you can learn more at failuretodisrupt.com. This episode of Teach Lab was produced by Amy Corrigan and Garrett Beasley, recorded and sound mixed by Garrett Beasley. Stay safe. Until next time.